The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Most of you know who are here, uh, and you've been with us on a regular basis. We've just been going through the book of Ephesians, section by section. We were gonna, I was going to go on with Ephesians today as we entered into chapter 5 of Ephesians, and that was the plan. But then on Monday, as most of you know, early Monday morning at Virginia Tech University, about 7.30 early in the morning, apparently one of the students there who was a senior uh, had two guns and went to a dorm on the campus and ambushed two fellow students in the dorm and murdered them in cold blood with a gun. At about 7.30 in the morning their time and then couple or an hour and a half went by and actually had time to go this killer went to the post office and sent video footage of himself and pictures of himself and notes and his manifesto as it were to NBC and then after he sent that he went back on his killing rampage there at the school campus after 9 a.m. and ended up going into one of the classroom buildings barricading himself and the students and the teachers in that classroom bolting the doors or locking them with a chain or whatever so they couldn't get out and went on a, um, a murder spree and killed a total of 32 students and a few teachers in cold blood and then at the very end of it all he ended up taking his own life, killing himself. That was Monday morning. So I heard, first heard about it on the radio Monday morning at about 10 that a few people had been shot at this university and then by the end of the day I had heard that 33 people were dead. And at that point I realized this was highly significant. And Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it was 24-7 on the news, every news channel, on the radio, it was everywhere. Uh, it had become a, a national tragedy, really. And so by midweek I just felt compelled, I think, the church needs to address this issue uh, because this is an issue that's nationwide. For the most part, it's something that has confronted our nation. It's going down as the most heinous and significant mass murdering in, in U.S. history. So that has implications for us as a people, as our society, and as a nation. So we need to deal with it. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody has questions about it. And that's what I noticed on the news, on television, particularly little bit on the radio, but especially on the major news networks, people were asking questions. And the main question people were asking, as you could imagine, is why did this happen? Why did this happen? And unfortunately, as I'm listening to the answers that the pundits are giving on television, they're not giving the right answers. I didn't hear the right answer once on television. Some people even started asking questions like, why did God let this happen? No doubt there's going to be a Larry King episode coming up asking, where was God in all of this at the Virginia Tech massacre? And he'll have a panel of religious gurus to answer that question. So questions are being asked. And actually, most of the questions are legitimate questions. When something like this happens, it is legitimate to ask that question, is why did this happen? That's just a natural question that we have, as humans have. That was the psalm that Sam read. It begins that way in Psalm 10. God, where are you when tragedy hits? Where are you when evil people get away with evil, wicked deeds? God, why is this happening? So it's a legitimate question. The psalmist asked the question. The difference between the psalmist and major news networks is the psalmist had the answer. The psalmist had a relationship with God. The psalmist had divine revelation from Almighty God. And God gave the psalmist the correct answer. 
And fortunately for us, the psalmist, at the end of that psalm in Psalm 10, he tells us the correct answer. Why did this happen? And I just felt that if when anything confronts the nation as a whole of this magnitude, like the 9-11, 2001 tragedy, or atrocity, really, and then the Columbine shootings years ago, Columbine hit me pretty personally because I grew up in Denver, Colorado my whole life. I lived in Littleton for a while. That's where it happened. I played basketball in the Columbine gym, Gymnasium. I knew people at Columbine High School. Fortunately, I was a Christian when that happened, and when all the people were asking, why did this happen, at least I knew, I knew why. I had answers in the Bible, and that's what gave me comfort, and that, what's, that gave me the grid or the template to resolve this horrible uh, atrocity that has confronted our culture. And so that's what I wanted to do today. Uh, I think the church needs to be on the cutting edge with God's authoritative word of answering the difficult questions in life, especially in our culture and things when they come up like this that are uh, universal in their impact with respect to our culture and highly uh, significant and when they're as devastating as they are, like this event that just happened. And what made it worse was NBC got the video. This guy made a video of himself. He made a video over the course of days, maybe even weeks. This was blatant, premeditated murder of the worst order. So NBC started showing the video over and over again. It was, it was, I watched it one time and just got chills that were not good up my spine, thinking this, this is evil. There's something inherently evil and satanic about this. Um, but nobody was speaking like that in their analyzing it was all from a humanistic secular evolutionary psychological medical diagnosis of why this happened and why this man did what he did but i'm thinking well as a christian i, I believe the bible has the answers we believe the bible is the inspired word of god it is the living word of god it is living and active and being that it's living it is dynamic and being that it's living it applies to every situation that we're confronted with even in our life today no matter what happens and that's the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. So what the Bible promises, the Bible is sufficient. It answers all of life's questions, the easy ones, the hard ones. And the Bible has answers regarding this issue. So that's what I wanted to do today. Is uh, So I came up with kind of either key issues or key questions that I kept either hearing repeated throughout the week on the news or just ones that came to my mind that I thought, you know, as a Christian community, we need to address these questions and we need to see what the Bible has to say about these issues. So that's what I want to do is kind of have a Bible study, take this horrible incident that happened and filter it through the grid of God's Word and Scripture to really interpret this for us, to give it meaning and significance to us in life. And that's what God's Word is for. So let's go ahead and look at that. And I came up with eight statements or questions. Most of them are questions. So I want to go through those. And we can't, I mean, there's so much that could be said. We can't necessarily address everything here. So I'm just going to highlight certain things as we go. And I tried to type things out for you if you wanted to refer to those later, especially the Bible verses. But I call it the reality of evil, the reality of evil, remembering the Virginia Tech atrocity. And this isn't just a tragedy, as some are calling it. Tragedy could be a natural disaster with nobody to blame. This is an atrocity. There is blame here. So let's go ahead and look at this. Uh, my point, my first point that I wanted to make is the reality of evil, like this shooting that so many people are scratching their heads about and don't know why this happened. The reality of evil like this is clearly addressed in the Bible. You know, as a Christian and having been a student of the Bible for a while, 
I was somewhat shocked, but I really wasn't surprised when I first heard about this. In other words, because of my biblical frame of mind and my Christian worldview, I immediately had answers that could explain why this happened. It's a heinous thing. Uh, it caught us off guard, somewhat unexpected, especially in a quiet little community like that. But I wasn't totally caught off guard, or at least I didn't. I wasn't without answers. I had answers in the Bible. The Bible addresses evil like this. The Bible addresses the, the evils of worst imaginable kinds, and that's the first point there. The, the reality of evil, like this horrible murder, is clearly addressed in the Bible. The reason I thought this was important to bring up is because when you're dealing with skeptics of Christianity or skeptics of the Bible or agnostics or atheists and you're in a discussion with them and they're critiquing Christianity, inevitably, they're going to get to the point of what they call the problem of evil. How can you believe in the God that you say you do as a Christian? Because isn't your God all-powerful? Yes. And isn't your God a good and loving God? Yes. And doesn't your God hate evil? Yes. Well, then if your God is all-powerful and he hates evil, how come he doesn't prevent evil from happening? Why does he let it happen? And thereby they impugn our God by virtue of spontaneous acts of violence like this, saying your God cannot be true in light of the evil that happens in our society when they are totally wrong, as though this kind of evil is a surprise to God or this kind of evil is a surprise to the Bible and the Christian, as though the Bible never even talks about these kind of things. And that's my point. This evil is not a surprise to God. This evil is not a surprise to the Bible. As a matter of fact, the Bible documents for all of history for 6,000 years these very incidents and explains why these things happen, and the Bible gives us the answer and solution to these kind of problems. So the Bible knows about evil and talks about it explicitly. Just some things I put on there. The Bible chronicles murder since the beginning of time. We're going to look at that in just a minute in Genesis 4. God, Scripture, the prophets, Jesus, and the apostles, all mentioned in the Bible, they warn humanity repeatedly about the ongoing reality of violence and murder. Not a surprise to God or the Bible. Murder is mentioned, described, or addressed in the majority of the 39 books of the Old Testament. Do you know that? Almost every book in the Old Testament deals with murder in one way or another. It's there. The Bible talks about murder. One of the most specific examples is the book of Judges. That is one of the most grisly books in all of the Old Testament, as it just records society back in that time. It was a horrible time in the world and in Israel. It says, for the most part, every man did what was right in his own eyes, which meant all humans were left to their own devices, which means the restraint of God's grace was lifted to a degree, and so you had this rampant proliferation of sinful acts of humanity, of the most egregious and heinous kind. And if you read through Judges, you'll see it. You will see murder. You will see dismemberment. I don't even want to go into the gory, ghastly details of it, but it is in the Bible. The Bible is honest about these things. Uh, like I said, the Bible mentioned the first murder that ever occurred in Genesis chapter 4. Exodus 1 records the mass slaughter of innocent little baby boys by a real king, the king of Pharaoh back in the days of Moses. Genocide recorded in the Bible. The Old Testament prophets, were many of them were brutally murdered themselves. The Bible records the mass slaughter of babies once again, genocide again of baby boys in Jerusalem during the days just before or at the time Jesus was born. It's recorded in the, the book of Matthew. The apostles themselves, the very representatives of Christ and those that founded the church, 11 out of 12 were murdered. Innocent people murdered. 
and the worst atrocity in human history and even the universe was the sinless Savior, Jesus Christ, was murdered. And God had a purpose in that murder, didn't He? The purpose in that very murder was the solution to all of man's problems. Murder. The death of Christ. He was murdered, and at the same time, Jesus willingly allowed himself to be murdered, to be our substitute for sin. Amazingly, a great irony, but a great truth, and the greatest truth of all. So the Bible talks about murder and these kind of things. I just want to focus in. Let's go to Genesis chapter 4, if you have your Bible. Let's look at the first murder that ever occurred. A murder that occurred in cold blood. It was a spontaneous murder, just like this was. It was unexpected, just like this one that happened last week. And it's the first one that ever occurred in human history. And human beings have been murderers ever since. But in Genesis chapter 4, let's start at verse 1. Now the man, that's Adam, had relations with his wife Eve. By the way, Adam and Eve were real people, according to the Bible, face value. Jesus believed Adam was real. Paul taught that Adam was real. This is a real historical story. This really happened. This is not metaphor. This is not mythology. That's why the Bible has the answers for us, because this really happened. Adam and Eve uh, had a son. Eve conceived and she gave birth to their son named Cain was his name. And then Eve said, I have begotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, another son. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So these were real men. Cain and Abel, sons of Adam and Eve. So it came about in verse 3, in the course of time, over the course of time, they had grown up now. They're of age. They're responsible. They know what they're doing. Young men. Or we don't even know how old they are. But in the course of time, that means a lot of time has gone by. They're grown up. That Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the fatlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard or accepted the offering of Abel. But Verse 5. But for Cain and for his offering, God had no regard. For whatever reason, Cain's offering to the Lord was not acceptable. So look at Cain's response. So Cain became, it doesn't say angry. Cain became very angry. That is the key. Why does murder happen? According to Jesus, murder starts with anger in the heart. And it's not just anger. He became very angry. It wasn't a momentary uh, phase of him just getting mad. He got very angry in his very soul. And it impacted every part of his being because it goes on to say he became very angry and his countenance fell. Anger is focusing on what was going on internally. And then it says his countenance fell. That's his outside, his face, his facial expressions, his mannerisms, his external disposition. Everything was affected by his deep-seated, burning anger inside. And he began to manifest that. And it was noticeable. That's what they say about this killer in Virginia Tech. His countenance detected and manifested, and it was noticeable that there was something brewing on the inside by virtue of his you know, blatant depression, the fact that he isolated himself from society. His fr he had no friends. He was a loner, and apparently even uh, isolated himself from his very own family to the point they didn't even know who he was. So that was his countenance. So his countenance, his exterior, even reflected what was going on on the inside. But it started on the inside, and that's what Jesus said. Murder starts on the inside with anger. 
So Cain became very angry. His countenance fell. And then the Lord said to Cain. So God confronts Cain on his anger. Why are you angry? God knows what's going on here. Isn't that interesting? Why didn't God stop this killer at Virginia Tech? You could ask the same thing here. Why didn't God stop Cain from murdering Abel? God knew about it. He knew about the anger in his heart when it happened before the murder ever took place. It's right here. God is asking him, why are you angry? This is before the murder took place. Why has your countenance fallen? Why are you acting the way that you are? Verse 7, if you do well, boy, you better take care of this issue. This is what he's saying. God's confronting Cain. You need to deal with your anger, Cain. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? You need to deal with your anger. It's affecting your whole life, your whole disposition, your whole attitude. It's catching up with you. And if you do not deal with this anger, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And the description in the Hebrew is very picturesque and descriptive. Sin, as anger wells up, sin is crouching at the door. It's ready to just burst through the door and manifest itself in some way. Some act of sin is going to result from what's going on in his heart. That's what God is warning. Sin is forthcoming of the worst kind. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Sin is lusting after you. Sin wants to usurp and overcome you. Sin wants to control you, Cain. This is a great warning from God about sin that starts in the heart. It's lusting after you and wants to master and overtake you, Cain, but you must master your sin, the sin that is in your heart. You need to deal with your anger now. If you don't, there will be severe consequences. So God did know what was going on before it ever happened. Verse 8. And then Cain had a conversation with Abel about something. Who knows what? But Cain had something in mind, premeditated action. So, so somehow he successfully coaxes Abel out where nobody's around, apparently. And he does it in such a way that Abel never suspects anything from Cain. He wasn't threatened by him, apparently. So when the two of them are out together, it came about when they were in the field, Cain and Abel, that Cain rose up. See, there's the, that is the spontaneous uh, action of him catching his brother off guard, totally unsuspected. That's exactly what this killer did. Catching people off guard, unsuspected, unprepared. He rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. Literally, he murdered him. That's what it says. He murdered his brother in cold blood. You know what? He didn't need a gun to do it. It's not the gun's fault, is it? He could have used a rock. He could have used his own hands. He could have used a stick. But he manifested the anger that was in his heart through an act of cold-blooded murder. That's the issue. It came from the heart. Verse 9, and then the Lord God saw all of this happening. He knew what was going on every step of the way. The Lord God was totally in control. He allowed this to happen for some reason, only resolved in the counsel of the infinite mind of God. But then the Lord God saw this and said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? God knew where Abel was. God knew that Abel was dead. He is confronting Cain once again. It's a rhetorical question. He's holding him accountable for his actions is what he's doing. And Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? There's that famous phrase. Am I my brother's keeper? I'm not responsible for him. So this is a cop-out and a lie. Not only was he a murderer, now he's a liar. That's exactly what Jesus said about the devil when, he was, when Jesus was confronting the very Pharisees and Jews that were someday going to murder Jesus in cold blood. Jesus confronted them because he knew their hearts and he said, you are like your father, the devil. You are the offspring, your father, the devil. And the devil was a murderer from the beginning. And you want to fulfill the desires of the devil himself, who was a murderer. Not only is he a murderer, he was a liar from the beginning. 
So Jesus calls the devil a murderer and a liar. And that's exactly what God is confronting Cain on. He was a murderer and a liar. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. What does that mean? When a murder is committed, every time a human being is killed or murdered, that is another human being defacing or destroying the very image of God. Every human being, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian, was created in the image of God. And that's why every single human life, whether they're a Christian or not, every life is sacred, precious, precious and belongs to God the Creator. He owns their life. No one, no fellow human being has the right to murder another human being without God's permission or God's plan. God owns every single one of us. And so he's saying, you murdered your brother. I was the creator of your brother Abel. And now his blood is crying out to me, God the creator, for justice, for vengeance, for right to be done. From the ground, verse 11, and now you are cursed from the ground. You are cursed on this earth, Cain, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And then God goes on to give Cain a consequence. He knew about it before it ever happened. He knew exactly what was going on. He knew the heart of Cain, the murderer. God saw it all happen. It was a part of his plan. He confronted Cain afterwards. He cursed Cain as a result. And ultimately, God dealt with that situation. So all that just to say, the Bible knows about these things. God knows about these things. In some mysterious way, these are all within God's purview of his plan throughout human history. So the Christian can be comforted by the fact that the Bible has the answers, even with horrible incidents like this. Let's go on to number two. What should our response be? What was your response on Monday? What was the Christian community's response? What should the response of the Christian community be to these kind of events? Well, I'm proposing, number two, there's an appropriate Christian response to this kind of atrocity, at least uh, at a minimum, would be prayer and compassion. Prayer. And immediately, uh, we saw churches all over America, at least I saw it, on websites and whatever, where churches began to pray for the university, began to pray for the families who had lost people, and just began to pray and ask God to intervene in this horrible situation. And that's the appropriate response on behalf of Christians. And also compassion. When you hear this kind of thing, compassion in the New Testament, we are told it said that Jesus had great compassion for the multitudes. You know what the word compassion in the New Testament means? It means uh, his, his bowels hurt, his gut hurt. That is the proper response of a Christian to this kind of atrocity. Immediate compassion. Feeling pain, sorrow, shame on behalf of what happened. And then praying to God to ask Him to intervene and to help and to give us wisdom. And how do we respond? Because immediately we don't know how to respond, really, many times to this kind of a situation. Unfortunately, there are some Christians that I've talked to, especially around the 9-11 time, who have just a weird, perverted view of God's justice. They're talking about the victims and the 3,000 people that got killed in the 9-11 Twin Towers incident. Say, well, you know, 3,000 people, they're all sinners. I mean, they're all going to die anyway sometime. You know, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And they just were very cold, perfunctory, and calloused, and had zero compassion for these 3,000 people, even going to the point to saying, well, they weren't really innocent. No human being is innocent because we're all sinners. You know, the Bible says in Isaiah, we're all, our righteousness is like filthy rags. Literally, these were the verses being quoted to me in a conversation by professing Christians. And this was their analysis of the situation. And this should be the heart response and the attitude of a Christian to this kind of thing. And needless to say, I was disgusted. I was surprised. I just couldn't believe it. You've got to be kidding me. This is your response? 
That is not the Christian response. We respond with compassion. Our gut should hurt. In these kind of situations, the Bible tells us that, uh, that's why I put Ecclesiastes 3, 1 and 4 there. It says in the Old Testament, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. There is a time to weep. There is a time to mourn. This is a time to weep and mourn for Christians. It's even a New Testament principle. Paul commands us in Romans 12, 15, Christians, weep with those who weep. That's sympathy, compassion. He doesn't say, well, weep only for the Christians who got hurt in an undeserving way. That's what it says. It's categorical. It's for every human being because they're made in the image of God. And this was an unjust situation. These people didn't deserve what happened to them. We're going to get to that in just a second. Look at Jeremiah 22, that verse I've got there. This is what the Lord God says. Do what is just and right, believer. Do no wrong or violence. Do not shed innocent blood. Do not weep for the dead king. By the way, the king that just died, he was an evil king. Don't weep for him. Don't weep for that evil, dead, vicious killer of a king or mourn his loss. Rather, weep bitterly for him who was exiled, the ones that were being punished, the ones who were unjustly killed or exiled. There's an appropriate response in an appropriate context, God says. Weeping is appropriate when God calls for it certain situations. By the way, it's kind of interesting when these situations arise spontaneously, like I think about the Virginia Tech incident, the Columbine incident, the 9-11 incident. You know, who's one of the first groups of people to arise and go to the cutting edge of where things are happening on the front lines to provide relief and comfort and counsel and prayers? You know what it is? The church of Jesus Christ, inevitably. It is. I've seen it. Like I said, I've already seen churches who, are, who have already, from day one when they heard about it, were trying to minister to the needs of the people on the campus, of the families. Uh, even the campus ministers or Christians on the campus of Virginia Tech immediately making themselves available as ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ to comfort these people, to give them answers that they're not going to get anywhere else. And that's what the church should do, shouldn't it? So not only is the church typically the first ones to respond to the scene, but I've also seen that the church and believers and Christians are usually the ones that hang around for the long term, aren't they? Because many times when there's an incident, somebody dies unjustly, oh, there's an immediate need, and then we forget about them three months later, six months later, two, two years later. Well, somebody's lost their dad and their mom and their orphan. They don't need six months of help. They need a lifetime of help. And that's how the church should respond. Unfortunately, there are people who represent Jesus Christ who are in the church and true believers who are being called and fulfilling that mandate that God is requiring. So I know we're far away here in Cupertino, but the least we can do is have compassion for these people, their families, and be in prayer. That God will raise up people specifically to help meet those needs. So that's an appropriate Christian response. Number three, this is one of the most popular questions that was asked this week. Why did, why did the killer do this? Why did this guy do this? And I'm going to get more specific to the answer to this question in number four when I get to it. But right now, why did the killer do this? Well, the Bible just basically says there's two reasons. I put it on there, A and, a and B. First of all, he did it because of sin. Because he was a sinner. I know it's a simple answer, and some people will accuse us of being simplistic, superficial, uncaring, and just throwing a religious platitude at the situation, saying, oh, he was a sinner. Well, that's really the only answer the Bible gives, and it's a real one, it's a significant one, it's the right one. Well, let's look at that, some of the key things. This killer, he was a sinner. He had sin in his heart. I said there that this was the result of a willful, notice, an act of volition. He knew what he was doing. 
He was responsible for what he was doing. It was a willful decision of someone. It was premeditated. He's making videos. He's planning this whole thing. He wants to go down in U.S. history in infamy, bringing the worst mass murder there ever was. You know what? He was successful because of the 32 people he killed. And then NBC did him a favor by publicizing him and making him famous for it. So he accomplished his goal. It was the result of willful decision of someone with a wicked heart. It was a deliberate act of sin, according to the Bible. The killer actor acted out on the hatred that came from within his own being, just like Cain. And Jesus declared that humans do evil deeds because they first have evil in their hearts. You know, Jesus is the master. He speaks authoritatively. This is the answer. Why did this guy do it? Because he had evil in his heart. And Jesus specifically said about murder in Matthew 15, 18, For out of the heart come evil thoughts which lead to murder. Why is there murder? It comes from hatred in the heart. It comes from within the human being. That's what Jesus said. That's the answer. People are born sinners. We know that. That's what the Bible teaches. Sin entered the world through the fall of Adam and Eve. They were real people. Adam really disobeyed God. And a consequence was that sin really entered into the world through Adam to Eve, and to the rest of humanity. And every human being that has ever been born, save Jesus Christ, was born a sinner. That's what the Bible says. Psalm 51, King David let us know through the Holy Spirit, not only were we born as sinners, we were conceived in sin. We inherited a sin nature at the time of conception. And as we grow up, we just act out on our very nature, on what's, the, what's on the inside, as sinners. That's the answer the Bible gives. It's because of sin. It's a consequence of disobedience. So the natural human heart left to its own devices is capable of the worst kinds of evil. Uh, another Bible verse I put there, Romans 5, 12, through one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world. And a consequence of sin is death. That's why death happens. Why does death happen? Is it a freak of the evolutionary process? No, it is not. Death is the consequence, the result of sin. The wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible teaches. And look at how wicked the human heart is. By the way, this is an examination of our own hearts. This is my own heart, naturally speaking. A diagnosis of my own heart, according to the Bible. Genesis 6-5. Then the Lord God looked down upon humanity, and he saw that the wickedness of man or humanity was great on the earth. Unbelievable. Deeds of violence and hatred. And, the, and where did it come from? Well, and that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. The human heart, filled with sin. Always, continually. Even his thoughts, his motives, warped on the inside. And that's because of sin, infected with sin. Jeremiah says the same thing. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart of man. This is talking about every human being ever born, save Jesus Christ. The heart of every human being is more deceitful sinfully deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. And one translation accurately says, desperately wicked. That's us in and of ourselves. We are not born neutral, morally speaking. We are not born good, as the world would tell us. We are born sinful with a wicked, evil heart. And that's why Jesus said to the people in John 3, 3, you must be born again. You must be spiritually reborn. So that God can give you a new heart. You need a heart transplant, sinner. That's what Jesus told us. And it only comes through knowing Jesus Christ personally. So it comes from the heart. Look at Romans 1, 28-32. I do want to read this because this Paul chronicles really the progression of sin. And it really starts in Romans 1, verse 18, where it says that, uh, that the wrath of God 
is being revealed from heaven, present tense, it's ongoing. God Is God going to judge America someday? Well, i got news for you, folks. God is already judging America. God has been judging America since it began to exist, and God has been judging every nation that began to exist all throughout history. Because that's what Romans 1.18 says. The wrath of God is being revealed. The wrath of God is coming down from heaven upon all man because of unrighteousness. That's what the Bible says. Then Paul goes on to say that every human being made in the image of God knows there's a God. They believe there are no atheists. They know God exists. They know it from their conscience that God gave them. They know it by virtue of the fact that every human being was made in God's image. And Paul goes on to say, and they know it because of creation around them. They know that a creator made all of this. But even though they know that God exists in their conscience because they're in God's image and because of natural revelation in the created order, they take that truth about God and they suppress it. They sit on it like a, a lid on a box and they don't want God to get out and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And because they continue to suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness and deny Him and keep Him at bay and stick their fist in His face and curse God, the very God they know that exists, and they continue to sin against their own conscience time and time again to the point where their conscience becomes seared, becomes insensitive to sin. Which means their sin grows. They go into a cycle and a spiral of sinful behavior and continue to resist God all the more. And as a result, you know what? God responds out of judgment to those who are like that. And it says that God gave them over. Okay, fine. You want to continue your own way and reject me and reject Christ and reject truth and reject the gospel and do your own thing? Then it says God gave them over to their sin to indulge it all the more. Three times in Romans 1, in this passage, Paul said that. So God gave them over. So God gave them over. And there's this increasing frequency of sin. And there's also an increasing severity of the kind of sin culminating in the worst kinds of sin imaginable. And that's the conclusion of it right here. So let's look at Romans 1, 28-32. And Paul concludes by saying, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God the Creator, like they should have, any longer, any longer, because probably when they were four years old, they actually believed in a God. You know, I haven't met many four-year-old atheists. I don't know about you. But it takes time to resist your conscience. To become an atheist, God gave them over to a depraved mind. That was wrong with, what was wrong with this killer? Well, he had a depraved mind. That means a skewed mind. His thinking was skewed, messed up, sinful, darkened, warped. Spiritually speaking and religiously speaking, depraved mind. And because he had a depraved mind, then he was going to do things which are not proper. Being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, the deed that he did, it was wicked. Don't mince words about it. It was wicked. He was full of greed, evil, full of envy. Notice, murder. Strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander. That's In the video, he was a slander. Slandering people, slandering God. Slander, hater of God, insolent, arrogant. He was arrogant. Boastful, boasting about the murder he was about to do. Inventor of evil. He invented new kinds of evil with the modern technology that he had at his disposal. Disobedient to his parents. His parents are absolutely ashamed of what he did. They don't even want to face the public. His parents probably taught him basic morality, right and wrong. You don't kill, you don't murder people in cold blood. He was without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, totally unmerciful. As we hear the stories about this, he was totally unmerciful. The uh, one instructor, 77-year-old, who was from Israel, who was trying to protect his students, blocking the door, telling his students to flee for safety out the door, 
And he was a Holocaust survivor. And it was on the very anniversary of Holocaust survivors. That day, the irony of it all. Here's a Holocaust survivor putting his life on the line for his students. Holding the door as the killer is just blowing bullets through the door and eventually killed that, that professor. This murderer had no mercy for anybody. He was a mocker. And although they knew the ordinance of God, they knew God existed. Those who practice such things are worthy of death. They knew, this guy knew that he was worthy of death. He knew that the police were going to get him whatever. That's why he killed himself, because he was a coward. He didn't want to face justice that he knew which was right. They not only do the same wicked things, but get this, they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. In his written manifesto that he sent into NBC, he refers to the two killers of the Columbine incident and calls them martyrs. He esteemed them. He endorsed what they did. He wanted to replicate and imitate what they did. Which is exactly what Paul says right here. They give hearty approval to those who practice them. See, the Bible has the answers, and the Bible has the answers very specifically. If you analyzed every detail that was involved here, it's amazing. So, to answer the question, why did this killer do it? Well, it was because of his own sin, and it was because of satanic influence. All that just to say, um, just read one of the verses there. And I already quoted from John 8. First uh, Peter says that be on the alert because the devil goes around like a raging lion seeking someone to devour. And I'm not blaming the devil on this. The devil didn't make him do it, but he was really a pawn of the devil and didn't even realize it. He was of his father, the devil. He was of the offspring of Satan. And when you watch the video, and I, I don't encourage you to watch the video. As a matter of fact, don't watch the video, but I did watch the video. And I said it was eerie because there was something satanic about it. Blatantly, clearly to me, especially, listen to what the guy said. I got a quote here. This is a whole bunch of stuff, but here's two things that he said. He, th he said, thanks to you, and he's blaming society for what he did, by the way. It wasn't his fault. It's everybody else's fault. It's rich kids' fault. It's white kids' fault. It's America's fault. Thanks to you, I die like Jesus Christ. Why did this guy invoke Jesus' name of all things? He did. Because I believe he had Satan inside of him. Satan knows Jesus. Satan fears Jesus. Satan hates Jesus. It's interesting. Every time you've got a killer like this, you have to invoke the name of Jesus. Not Buddha. Not Allah, not Joseph Smith, Jesus Christ. They know Jesus, they hate Jesus. Satan was inside of this guy, controlling him. He had just given his life to Satan at this point. And he says, thanks to you, I die like Jesus Christ, to inspire generations of the weak and the defenseless people. So here he's claiming to be pleasing Jesus. And in the very next phrase, he says this, Jesus loves crucifying me. Jesus loves inducing cancer in my head, terrorizing my heart, wrecking my soul all the time. So now he's blaming Jesus for what he did. Which leads me to the next question. Whose fault is this? Who is to blame? Here's answers I heard on the news this week. Who is to blame for this? Well, it's his medication that he was taking. That's to blame. Well, it was the lack of medications that he was taking. That was to blame. No, it's the guns. We need more gun control laws. That'll stop all the violence and evil in the world, won't it? Just like it did in the day of Cain and Abel. Cain just didn't have a gun. I mean... Oh, oh, that's right. There were no guns. Society is to blame. The killer specifically blamed society. He blamed rich people, like I said, uh, privileged people. He was underprivileged. He blamed uh, people that picked on him when he was growing up. He blamed all kinds of people. And you know what? Inevitably, people are also going to blame God. Where was God in all this? How come God didn't? You know what that is? That's blaming and impugning God. But let's get the record straight. Who is at fault here? Who is to blame? The murderer and only the murderer of the Bible is clear. And I put some verses on there for you. The murderer is to blame. The Bible clearly teaches that everyone is accountable before God for their own actions. Blame shifting is condemned in the Bible categorically. 
Um, Adam and Eve tried to blame each other. They tried to blame Satan. God would have none of it. You're accountable for your own actions. Look at F on number four. You are, every single person is accountable for their own actions. Ezekiel 18, just excerpts. The man who does detestable or sinful things, his blood will surely be on his own head. You're accountable for the wrong things that you do. He will not die for his father's sin. You can't blame your family or your circumstances. The soul that sins is the one that will die. The father will not share the guilt of the son when he stands before God being judged. The wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him because of the sins he has committed. He will die. So the moment that killer died and killed himself, you know where he was? He was immediately thrust and catapulted instantaneously before the judgment throne of God and had to give account for every sin he committed in his life. That's what the Bible says. So whose fault was it? It was the sinner's fault, the killer's fault. It was his fault and only his fault. Number five, who were the real victims? Well, the real victim was not... That was another thing I heard over the course of the week, that people were trying to make the guy that was the murderer the victim. Oh, this poor man growing up in society and everybody picked on him and he was deprived and he didn't have as much money as everybody else and nobody was his friend and they ostracized him and he is the victim. Of society, that is not true. That is not a biblical response. The innocent victims were the 32 people who didn't deserve to die, and I call them innocent. I'm not saying they were without sin, but they were innocent. They didn't deserve to die this way, at the hands of a vicious murderer like that. And I put some Bible verses there very clearly to show you. The real victims were the 32 people that lost their lives, and also the victims are the families who were left behind and the friends who loved them. Number six, why did God let the killer get away with this? Uh, God didn't let the killer get away with this, like I just said. That killer died and ended up in the very judgment room of Almighty God and has to give account, really, for all eternity for what he did and for all of his sins. That's why God says in the Bible, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I will not let any wickedness go unpunished, says Exodus 34. So God didn't let him get away with it. Number seven, where was God in all this? Well, God was fully aware of what was going on and in total control of all things for his ultimate glory and purposes. God knows the beginning from the end. He knows all events that are going to happen. Everything happens within the purview of his plan. It is hard to explain. It's inexplicable. Sometimes it's a mystery. It is frustrating. We don't know, especially the bad things. But that's why we have to trust God by faith. He is a good God. That's why Romans 8.28, every Christian, is a great promise for them that God works all things together for good according to his ultimate purposes. God works all things together for good. God works bad things together for good. That verse doesn't say that God says all things are good. That verse does not say that. This was not a good thing. This was a horrible thing. But what that verse is saying is God will take even horrible things and work them together for good for him and even for those who love him. So maybe we can't even see the good right now. Maybe one of the immediate good things that might happen as a result is people will cry out to God and be saved, right? And their eternal soul will be saved. Wouldn't you rather exchange the life of your eternal soul than your temporal life that could be snuffed out at any time? So God was aware. God was there. He was involved. He still is involved every step of the way. And I give you some other information there to explain how God was involved. He's living and active at every place in the universe. And then finally, number eight, just a real practical challenge for all of us. And the question is, what should Christians learn from this atrocity? What can we possibly take away from this? And there, there are many things. And I just gave us some suggestions. One, as you think about it, this just reminds you this world is horrible, isn't it? Sam, you know, in his prayer, said, talked about the 
perilous journey of this life? Really, it is. I mean, if you're honest, we're on a perilous journey. It is not glamorous. It is filled with sin. I know I'm sounding pessimistic. But the being optimistic is our hope is in Jesus Christ. That's the point. This world is not our home. Paul said in Philippians 3.20, Heaven is our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. Oh, Lord Jesus, come Maranatha. Eternal heaven is our home. Glorious perfection without sin forever. That's what we look forward to. That's the hope of the Christian. This world is not our home. We are here temporarily. Sojourners, aliens. What else? Letter B, be realistic about sin in the world. Don't deny it. Don't ignore it. Like NBC, CBS, CNN, Fox, every one of them did. Nobody talked about sin. I don't think I heard the sin word. Be realistic about sin and the reality of it in the world. And teach you. Letter C, ask God to guard your own heart as a sinner. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy. You know, we all, we all have a wicked heart. Save Jesus Christ, knowing Him. We have got to guard our heart and ask God to protect us from our own sin. That we don't fall susceptible to what happened with Cain who didn't guard his heart. And that's why Christians... Did you know that actual born-again Christians can actually engage and fall into and commit gross, unimaginable sin? They can. It really happens to real Christians. Because of the sin in our heart, we've got to guard against it. Uh, D. Be prepared, Christian, because things will not get better. We are not evolving. We don't believe in evolution. We believe in de-evolution. That's what the Bible teaches. Society is getting worse. People are getting worse. If you're old enough, you can just look over the course of your own lifetime and probably see that societally speaking, life is getting worse. Paul says that in the Bible. Be prepared because things are not going to get better as time goes on, but actually worse. I just grieve at the thought of what's, what is our society going to be like 20 to 30 years from now and I think about my own young children. It it's actually kind of scares me. It makes me very uncomfortable. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4, Paul talks about that. In the latter days, society is going to get more and more corrupt. And Paul says that bad men will go from bad to worse. That is not encouraging. But it's reality. And then you've got Revelation talks about the end times. They're going to be horrific. E, teach and warn your children about the reality and danger of sin. Teach your, one of the best things you can do as a Christian parent is teach your children a biblical homardiology. Isn't that helpful? Oh, I'm sorry. A biblical doctrine of sin. The reality of sin. It is real. We can't ignore it. Don't just brainwash them in videos to escape reality in life. And where do we start when we teach our children about the reality of sin in the world? Starting with the sin in their own heart is where it starts. Greatest thing that a parent can do for their children. Number, You know what? That's why as a child, if you're taught biblically in the right way and you're a little kid and you're growing up, you're not going to inherently, innately just trust people, especially strangers. Because you know there is a sinner. That man is a sinner. That woman is a sinner. Danger. They need the gospel. Uh, F. Warn others about this perverse generation. I didn't use that term. I didn't make that terminology up. The Apostle Paul did. We're Christians. We are lights. And we shine in a perverse lost, sinful, fallen, corrupt, distorted generation. That's what Paul said 2,000 years ago. You know what? It's worse now than it was when Paul was around. Perverse generation, that's what he said. Warn people. Gee, finally, remember Jesus Christ is the only solution for a fallen world. You know, that there's the hope, isn't it? I've been laying on all this pessimistic, sad, frustrating, overwhelming, disturbing information for 40 minutes or so. And here, where's the good news, Christian? Here is the good news. Jesus Christ, He is alive. He rose from the dead. He conquered death. He conquered the devil. He conquered fallenness. 
And He reigns on high. He is alive today. He is in our midst. If you're a Christian, He is in your heart. There's our hope. Remember, Jesus Christ is the only solution for a fallen world, for sinful humans, individually speaking, and to overcome satanic influence that rules the world. 1 John 5 says that the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. That's Satan. So with that, let me close by reading this wonderful passage about Jesus Christ, the good news that he provides for every person who comes to him, asking him to be Savior and Lord. And listen to this, what Paul says. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we, for we Christian, remember that we also were once foolish ourselves. We were moronic, he says. We were that way before we got saved. So we can't be self-righteous here. We were just as sinful. We also, before we got saved, were foolish ourselves. We were disobedient. We were deceived by ourselves and by Satan and by sin. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and look at, and envy and hatred, hating one another. Wow. Hatred is the root of murder. That's what you were like, Christian. And Paul's saying, that's what I was like. Paul was a murderer. That's what he did for a living before he got saved. So he knows what he's talking about. But, and that's a great conjunction there. But, it's not like that anymore, Christian. But when the kindness of God, kind, God looks down at sinners and he's kind. He woos them. He draws them. He saves them. He changes them. He forgives them. That is kind. We didn't deserve it. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for sinful mankind appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, God saved us. Not on the basis of deeds and good works that we have done in righteousness because we were religious and better than others, but according to God's mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit when you believe in the gospel. And when the Holy Spirit comes in you, He changes your wicked, sinful heart and gives you a new heart, a heart of flesh whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. If you could bow with me. Father, we do thank You for this morning. And God, this morning I want to thank You most of all for Your Word, for the Bible that has been around. It's, it's proliferated all over America the number one best-selling book in America and throughout all history, and yet we neglect to read it, believe it, and apply it. So God, just jog us to appreciate the treasure of your word. It is your voice to sinful humanity. It is your answers to our deepest questions. And just like the devastation we experienced this week, God, thank you so much. You have given us answers. You have given us hope. And we know the greatest hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal relationship with Him. And God, I do pray for every family of victims that was murdered six days ago needlessly, that you would comfort them, that you would raise up Christians on the campus, in the neighborhood, from around the country, to be in prayer on their behalf, to bring the gospel, to be the, bring the comfort of Jesus Christ, that people would come to you as a result, lives would be changed for eternity, Justice would also be brought in your time and in your way, and ultimately that you would be glorified in all things. And with that, God, just give us peace of mind, give us hope as we live day to day, trusting in you, knowing this is not our home, but our home is with you in heaven. We commit this day to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.